Hey everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Colored Red, where I'm going to be breaking down some of the infamous and some of the more unknown Colorado Christmas time murders. It's that special time of the year when we can gather around with family and friends, or gather around our TVs with the alcohol of our choosing, or if you're like me, you're spending your holiday season packing your house and moving, but at any rate, the holidays are supposed to be a time of relative happiness and merriment, but maybe that's the problem with them to begin with. Most people wouldn't associate Christmas with crime or murder, but this is the time of the year that most city morgues end up calling the busy season. Crime and murder during Christmas season is not limited to Colorado either. The phenomenon occurs in every country that celebrates Christmas, and there are some interesting legends associated with Christmas um, and the darker and deeper iconography that sort of has made Christmas sort of a dark thing in a lot of different countries. For instance, in Yorkshire, England, a bell called the Devil's Knell is rung at 10 p.m. every Christmas Eve to signify that when Christ was born, the devil himself died. The bell finishes ringing at midnight, and a local legend explains that the custom was established by a man named Thomas de Soothill in penance for murdering one of his own servants five or six hundred years ago. But aside from a creepy two-hour-long bell ceremony ushering the devil himself to death, the surgeon crime around Christmas has a lot of various theories behind it. The psychology of violence tells us that crime rates spike on days that more people have off. For instance, Friday evenings and the weekend typically see higher crime rates than the weekdays. So it goes without saying that a day that almost everyone has off sees higher crime rates. Additionally, many people choose to spend their holidays drinking and using drugs, further adding to the potential for crime. Stress and depression spike over the Christmas season, and pressures to provide for family reach a fever pitch. Some researchers believe that unpredictability fosters crime, meaning that people doing novel activities and deviating from their normal routines can drive someone into a spontaneous action or the other way around, they can become vulnerable to criminals themselves. Thieves might target cars and homes and people on the street with the knowledge that they may be carrying around extra cash or have gifts in their homes or cars. The holidays are rife with distraction and new emotions that tend to stay buried for most of the year. And it's important during this time of the year to just relax and try to have fun. Christmas comes every year, and if you flub it up, you can at least take solace in the knowledge that some people have had far worse Christmases. So what prompted to me to make this episode about Colorado Christmas murders is a tiny little article in the Aspen Times dated December 26, 1914. The headline was, Denver has usual Christmas murder. And my first question was usual, but so I ended up going back a couple of decades into the 1800s and scoured newspapers for Christmas murders and found a decent amount. And so there's either a lack of documentation or just a lack of murders from about the 1930s all the way up until the 1970s for Christmas time murders. But basically, we see a huge block of murders in the early 1900s and late 1800s. And then we also are sort of getting a brand new surge of Christmas time murders in this state. And I'll be going through all these cases with you guys and doing a short summary of each. So get yourself some whiskey or some nog and sit back and enjoy.
So we're going to start all the way back in 1895 on the eastern edge of Arapahoe County near a town called Burlington on Christmas Eve. This murder is what is referred to as the Munksinger Tragedy. Initially, reports indicated that a man named Munksinger was killed as he was beating a woman named Mrs. Horajik and that her husband shot Munksinger to protect his wife. Later, it was revealed that Munksinger was actually shot in the back while at the home of Mr. Hum, where he was just retrieving medicine for a child he had who was sick with the croup. On December 15, 1902, John Irwin, son of D.W. Irwin, was shot and killed by Joseph Meenan, who was also shot but ended up recovering. They were adjoining farmers, and they quarreled over pasturing of stock, and years later, Meenan would end up being assassinated by relatives of John Irwin, who took him into a field and shot him. An article about Christmas Eve, 1903, a man only referred to as Leroy was found frozen to death at the Spencer Coal Banks near Mancos. John Pearson and John Larson of Telluride had bloodstains on their cabin floor and a gold watch belonging to the dead man. And on Christmas Day, 1905, Patrick Brennan, 28 years old, killed his fiancée, Mrs. Kate Lowney, in Stumpton near Leadville, Colorado. Patrick Brennan had moved from Butte, and he had no relatives and few friends in the community. He ended up arguing, and this was a pretty paramount case for for Colorado at the time. He argued that he was so drunk at the time that he was incapable of planning the crime, and it could not be murder in the first degree. This spurred debate in courts all over the country over whether or not a drunk person can willfully commit a murder. The courts decided to maintain the conviction of first-degree murder at the end. This same year, on December 25th, Christmas Day, saw one of Denver's oldest and more famous murders on Christmas Day. Jacob Weiskind, uh, described as a rag picker who was working in junkyards at Six and Larimer, on Christmas Day, when Philip Lind and Philip Kaiser, members of a gang of hoodlums, attacked Weiskind because, as they said, they were Christians and Weiskind was a Jew. And they would, and I'm quoting here, Avenge the blood of Christ by shedding the blood of a so-called Christ killer because he was working on Christmas Day. Weiskind actually began to recover from his wounds before dying of sepsis in the hospital. And as is typical of the times, each side had a bit of a verbose comment on the matter, and as said by Assistant District Attorney Greeley Whitford, standing for the victim, This is a picture from the brush of Delacroix. No other artist could depict the brutal faces smeared with blood and mud, distorted with animal lust for physical encounter, ferocious with the longing to hold, with clutching fingers, the throat of their victim while they kicked and beat and smashed and mauled and pounded and stoned to death a lone, defenseless Jew. Murder, foul, premeditated, inexcusable, horrible murder. Murder in the first degree and nothing else. I demand at your hands a verdict of guilty. District Attorney Greeley Whitford would go on to make the case that the entire country, by way of telegraph and newspaper, had already been informed that a Jew was killed in Denver on Christmas Day by a gang of roaming, bloodthirsty Christians, and that the community should avenge the murder so that the rest of the free world would not believe that Denver would let such a murder go unavenged. He called the trial to a test of Denver's decent citizens to convict of murder in the first degree, but... 
The jury convicted Philip Lind and Philip Kaiser of involuntary manslaughter with a mere one year in the county jail. The following year, 1906, on Christmas Eve, a quarrel between two miners, and that's miners who mine things from the mountains, over a fight knocked the pipe out of a Hungarian miner's mouth named Kovish, and it ended in Kovish shooting the man who knocked the pipe out of his mouth through the head. So the man who died was Andrew Pollock, and this was all over a fight over a dropped pipe. On December 26, just a couple days later that same year, a man named John C. Bragg had his arm shot as he fleed following the murder of a night marshal named James Frisbee. Shortly after Christmas, Bragg entered a hospital where they amputated his arm due to it being too damaged from the bullet wound. He would later commit suicide by arsenic in a city park after being informed of an arrest warrant for him for the murder of James Frisbee. An accomplice named Andrew Johnson would later be arrested in Kansas after a pistol duel. And a short article from the Aspen Times for the following year, December 27, 1907, informs readers of the reported murder and suicide stats for the United States on Christmas Day, indicating that 42 murders and 11 suicides were reported, with one suicide and three murders in Colorado. What those three murders were, I can't really tell you because I could not find a single paper that had anything about them. So, could be lost in time or they're on some paper that hasn't been put on the online archives. So, we're going to jump to December 29, 1914, when the body of 30-year-old Philip Roberts Jr. was found in his Cripple Creek cabin. The sheets on the bed were covered in blood and there were five bullet wounds in Roberts' neck and left. They ended up leaving the side of his chest as well. He had disappeared on Christmas Day. Roberts was employed by El Paso Consolidated Mining Company, and five fellow miners would end up being arrested for this. That same year, on December 25th, this is Christmas Day itself, 1914, a 24-year-old man died in the county hospital from a bullet wound in the abdomen inflicted by 26-year-old George Myers. They were fighting over a card game. On December 24, 1922, George Griffith murdered Howard Hamilton on Deer Trail. Three others were involved, including a woman who was wounded named Miss Pearl Coor, her lover, a former deputy sheriff, and what the papers described as a Mexican dandy named Jake Leal. Illicit hooch was suspected to be at the center of the whole ordeal. On Christmas Day, 1925... And we'll go all the way to Christmas Day, 1925, at a small schoolhouse in Pagosa Springs, where two students were quarreling over a fight after the Christmas play that they held that day. And this left 21-year-old Mrs. Bartlett dead from a gunshot wound to the heart, coming from 20-year-old Mrs. Minnie Hicks, who had actually picked up a rifle to use it to scare the children into being quiet. Mrs. Bartlett tried to seize the rifle from her, at which point it was discharged, killing her. And on Christmas Day 1926, Mrs. Lilas Evans shot and killed her husband, but was eventually freed some years later, and no further details can be found about that murder. So now we're going to jump right to 1976. On December 26, the day after Christmas, Holly Andrews' battered body is found on a mountainside, and this case would end up becoming one of Colorado's oldest cold cases. Holly left her mother's home in Littleton between 5 and 5.30 p.m. on the day after Christmas, 1976, and it is suspected that she hitched a ride, as was seen by several bystanders who saw her get into a car. Cross-country skiers would end up finding her body, 
20 feet off of Grizzly Gulch Road, nude, except for a pair of blue knee socks. She was stabbed once in the chest and six times in the back. Semen collected from her body was preserved as evidence at the time. And in 1983, none other than Henry Lee Lucas confessed to killing her, but... As we know, Lucas was known to confess to many crimes that he didn't commit for attention, and he would end up confessing to some 3,000 murders over his time in prison. So that wasn't really taken seriously, and in 2005, a man named Ricky Lee Harnish was convicted of a felony drug charge, and under a brand new state law, had to have his DNA collected for the felony drug charge. It was flagged as a match to the semen found on Holly. He remained in jail until 2009 when he pled guilty to the murder of Holly Andrews. And in 1996, we have everybody's favorite case, and my favorite case, to be honest with you, of JonBenet Ramsey. In 1996, uh, she was killed either late Christmas Day or early Christmas morning. Her parents would call the police that morning after Patsy found a ransom note on the staircase of their Boulder home. Because of the call's proximity to Christmas and the inexperience of the Boulder PD dealing with kidnapping and murder cases at that time, the B-team arrived at the home and failed to lock it down, allowing several friends as well as the Ramseys themselves to wander around the home. JonBenet's body would be found in a far corner room of the basement wrapped in a blanket. She had a garret around her neck fashioned from the broken handle of a paintbrush that had been also found in the basement, and she had loose ligatures on her wrists that later investigators believed were staged. What would ensue is one of the most talked about and argued about cases of the last 50 years. JonBenet died of blunt force trauma to the top of her head that did not break the skin, and the ligature around her neck was applied after death, and she was also suspected to be a part of the staging that went on with her body. The ransom note, probably the strangest ransom note in the history of crime, provides a window into the writer's internal monologue. And the parents would wind up later on being exonerated by the DA's office due to touch DNA found on JonBenet's underwear. Now I've brought up my opinions on touch DNA in this podcast before, but to exonerate people based on it I think is a little bit reaching. Touch DNA is a very sensitive DNA collection process that they do to essentially get DNA out of a handful of skin cells left behind from touching an object. So we know that JonBenet was wearing this underwear and she was put down on the floor of the living room when she was brought up. Her father handled her. Her mother handled her after she was found dead. Um, various autopsy technicians and paramedics and police officers were also in the room. And they ended up finding some five unknown male DNA profiles on the underwear and one female DNA profile on the underwear that they could not match to John or Patsy Ramsey. So this brings up a few questions in my mind of, number one, why didn't they find their DNA on her underwear, her, their touch DNA on her underwear, because they were touching her and they were on top of her. And she was laying on carpet that had... Their skin cells dropped on it for years and years, and I'm not clear why they didn't find that on there. And it just adds the reasons why what they did find on her underwear didn't mean anything at all. And based on these exoneration DNA, um, basically they're trying to argue that five men and a woman snuck into the house that night to 
stage a murder of JonBenet Ramsey, leave her body in the basement, and write a ridiculous ransom letter asking for enough money to pay them each roughly $7,000. And it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But I'll probably be doing that case for next Christmas or something because I do love it and... um there's a lot out there on it. If you ever get the chance, you should read the book Foreign Faction. It's a really excellent book on the case. So back to Christmas murders. On Christmas Eve 2008, uh, 38-year-old Margaret Sweet was gunned down outside of her home in Colorado Springs. Her father found her body the next morning on Christmas Day, lying on the side of the house as he drove home after a day of visiting her stepmother in the hospital. Margaret was cold, and one of her legs was hanging in the window well of a basement window. A neighbor had apparently heard a shot the night before, but failed to call the police about the shot that she heard. The police eliminated her father, and they went to question 56-year-old Jer Dale Bates, or maybe it's Bats, could be Bats, a former boyfriend of Margaret. He had apparently followed her to Colorado Springs from Nashville, where they met, and she had a restraining order against him. At one point, Bats had left a dozen red roses, a teddy bear, and a diamond engagement ring on her car's front hood after flying to Colorado Springs to find her. But Bats was on a date with another woman the night that Margaret was shot. Additionally, he passed a lie detector test, and police determined that he had not shot a gun recently. He claimed that Margaret had been hanging out with a much younger boyfriend and some interesting new friends shortly before her death. Some information has come out indicating that Margaret had a secret life of meeting people online with an alias called Shelby Jameson. But there was a good portion of her life that her family just didn't know anything about. So her murder actually remains unsolved. On 2009, a couple days before Christmas, Christina Sears, 44 years old, fatally shot her 75-year-old stepmother and severely wounded her 49-year-old stepsister over an altercation about her father's estate, a dispute that was years in the making. After shooting them, she called her 22-year-old son and told him that she had done something bad. They met at a bar, and she was later arrested at that bar and police found her stepsister shot multiple times but alive and her stepmother dead in the home. She emptied the rest of the clip into a nearby TV and left the gun in the home before fleeing. Two children were also present in the home in a different room but were not injured. And in a case that is in Weld County, a county that we've become very familiar recently with the Chris Watts case, in 2011, Kristen Elizabeth Lujan was suffocated to death on Christmas Eve. At the time, there was not enough evidence to arrest her husband, Matthew Patrick Gonzalez, until his sister later turned in a letter that her brother allegedly wrote her in July, saying that he killed his wife. On Christmas Eve, when Kristen died, her husband had called police and told them that she was in the shower and had choked on her own vomit. He claimed that they had a fight about him finding drug paraphernalia on her, and he claimed that she struck him and he threw her face down into a mattress and wrapped her in a blanket to restrain her. Later on, he would then admit that he blacked out and woke up to himself straddling Kristen with a pillow to her face. Police couldn't find enough evidence to convict him of first-degree murder, and he was not arrested until 2013, 
where he pled guilty to second-degree murder and is sentenced to 25 years in prison as of 2015. So he essentially tried to claim that he had, in a state of blackout, accidentally suffocated his wife to death, even though it's pretty clear to everybody that he likely did it on purpose. So on Christmas Day 2015, 35-year-old Fee Pham fatally shot his girlfriend's former boyfriend, Cyril Kim, as Kim was over visiting a son that he had with the girlfriend. Pham and Kim had known each other for years and had been friends. Pham and the girlfriend initially told investigators that an unknown man had forced his way into the home and shot Kim with no provocation whatsoever. However, they later learned that Pham and Kim had been drinking and arm wrestling when the shooting happened. The gun was found in a bag of dog food on the porch of the house, and Fee Pham got 18 years in prison for this murder in 2015. And here's a very heartbreaking case from Christmas morning, 2016. 21-year-old Kayla Burke was stabbed to death on the 1400 block of Pearl Street in Capitol Hill. Kayla's former boyfriend attacked Kayla and a friend of hers before turning the knife on himself. Kayla had just been up in their apartment retrieving some clothes after a fight. She called police to escort her into the apartment in what is known as a civil standby. And they left after she left the apartment and told them that she would be fine waiting for a ride on the street. Shortly after they left, she was stabbed by her former boyfriend who came down to get her. Kayla died at the scene and her friend was seriously injured but survived. The former boyfriend also survived despite taking a knife to his own throat and getting tased by the police, who he told to just let him die. Sam Burke, Kayla's father, who is also a retired police officer, blames the police for letting her stand on the street after the civil standby without police present. And finally, here's the most recent Colorado Christmas time murder story, which is still unfolding. On December 18th, 2017, the boyfriend of 19-year-old Natalie Bollinger reported her missing. Police then discovered her body on December 29th on the property of McIntosh Dairy Farm. And curiously, she had enough heroin in her system to kill her when she was shot. And that detail about this case has yet to be explained or... um, They have yet to find the reason for that in the investigation. So police then poured over her social media accounts and interviewed her friends, and eventually they singled out 22-year-old Joseph Michael Lopez, a man she had not known for very long at all. Lopez then claimed that he stumbled across a strange ad while coming through the Women Seeking Men section of Craigslist. The ad was requesting a hitman, and Lopez contacted Natalie pretending to be one. Police uncovered hundreds of texts between the two discussing how she wanted to be killed and how he would be paid afterwards. Initially, Lopez denied that he was with her when she died, but then they discovered that his cell phone was at the scene of the crime. After picking her up, they drove around, and he claims that he tried to talk her out of it during this time. He also claims that she brought her own gun. He told police that they parked the car and they both got out. Natalie knelt down on the ground, and he knelt down on her left side in front of her. He said that they both said a prayer, and then he got up, closed his eyes, and shot her. The motives and details are still being investigated for this case. So, that's it, Colorado. Be safe next week. Be calm. Let's end this totally shit year without another Christmas martyr. Next year, we might see some live events for Colored Red, and I'm also starting to get involved with a little bit of an investigation story 
that I hope to release sometime in the summer. So have a safe and happy holiday and a new year, everybody. Thanks for all your patience this year with me. And I hope to just make the show even better and even more quality next year. So thank you, everybody, to for hanging in with me and working with me through this growing process that I'm doing. We've hit over 10,000 listens on all the episodes right now, and we have almost 700 listeners. And I'm so stoked on this, you guys. Thank you all so much for being a fan of the show and listening to the show. So thanks, you guys. Have a safe, happy holiday and a new year again. See ya.